Hi everyone and welcome to Defy These Times. My name is Joey Yub and I'll be your host today alongside Daniel Kurd. We're talking to Sally Abed or Linoy in Amjad Irai about the state of Israel's political landscape. We focused on its ongoing smotrichization, as Olinoy called it, i.e. a normalization of far-right rhetoric. We spoke about the political crackdown, the normalization of genocidal rhetoric against Palestinians. But we also focused about the necessity to push for change in Israel-Palestine. This is at a time when Netanyahu and the Israeli far-right have effectively taken over politics, not just at the electoral level, but many would argue at the cultural level as well. They have normalized the horrors that we are currently seeing in Gaza. Many self-described liberals in Israel, and even many self-described leftists, have effectively joined in. The calls for violence, ethnic cleansing, genocide, apartheid, and so on. And in all of that mess, principled left-wing voices seem all but gone in Israel. But that's not actually the case, and this episode will explore and explain how that is so. We also used uh, the opportunity of having three amazing guests on to ask them to share their personal theory of change, offering a glimpse into their vision of the future. Uh, again, this is not a newsy podcast, so please take that into account. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please head out to patreon.com slash times if you'd like to support this podcast. And please leave a review and a five-star rating on the podcast app of your choice, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast that allows uh, that kind of option. This is very important to support this podcast because without it, we get buried uh, in the algorithm of those two big platforms as well as the other platforms. So we are kindly asking you to take a minute of your time, not even, actually, just like 10-15 seconds of your time. Leave us a good review or hopefully a good review on those platforms and uh, then come back to the episode and hopefully you'll find it as productive as Dana and I did while recording it. So yeah, thank you for listening everyone and take care. Hello everybody, my name is Dana El-Kurd. I'm a assistant professor in political science and I write on Israel-Palestine and I'm very glad to be here with all of our awesome guests. Okay, I'm Sari Abed. I'm a community organizer, um, an activist uh, here in Israel, and I'm part of the national leadership of Naqif Ma'an, Mumdin Biyachad, Standing Together. Uh, we're the largest Jewish-Arab grassroots movement in Israel, and we lead uh, anti-occupation peace efforts as well as social and climate justice efforts uh, in Israel. Hey everyone, my name is Amjad Iraqi. I'm a senior editor at 972 Magazine and a policy member at the Palestinian think tank Shabaka. And I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel, currently based in London. Hi everyone, um, I'm Oli Noy. I'm a journalist and editor at the Hebrew website Local Call and a contributor to 972 Mag. I am also a political activist, the chair of uh, the human rights organization B'Tselem, and a translator of Farsi literature into Hebrew. Thank you all for being here. All right, Joey, so do you want to ask the first question or do you want me? Well, the first question is sort of a, let's say, broad one. We, we tend to do this on the Friday times. The questions tend to be as broad as is possible so that we also allow guests to really express themselves. So this is how it's written. Feel free to, to respond to it however you, you want. And also feel free to just jump in and then we'll, we will try and be civilized, uh, as much as we can. Uh, so what are conditions like right now in the Israeli political landscape 
for the left specifically and also you know more broadly um and you know more specifically than that for human rights advocates and for folks like you uh if you can kind of paint us a picture if that makes sense um i am i always describe myself as a chronic optimist and and i am i really am but it's it's a survival mechanism and honestly if i i need to answer this question honestly it's very concerning we are seeing an unprecedented alignment of much of the quote unquote left and and liberal uh, center uh, with uh, uh, the policies and with the government that they went and protested against you know a month and a half ago we are also seeing not a very small portion of the society uh, supporting uh, you know very genocidal calls and a very very large portion that is condoning those calls or at least overlooking them and not really protesting them and honestly we understand you know this is an effect this is a human you know response people just don't see humanity of the other side it's survival it's like you know existential threats kill them all you know they're all a threat i do hope that it will subside that we will be able to recover you know large portions of these of the, if this kind of public uh, uh, you know going forward what worries me is the liberal center and left that is currently not even talking about us here the palestinians in israel who are you know enduring a very heavy political persecution and social persecution and that worries me honestly that worries me even more in 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 some in some way because one you know we are always conditioned not to identify as palestinian we're always sanctioned but now it's like you're either human or not human right so like you have it's it's like that kind of identification right now has very heavy persecution and very undemocratic uh, consequences that it worries me that you know people who up until again a month and a half ago went on the streets shouting democracy are not you know even reacting to it so that's my take my very very short slash long take on it and i'm sure amjad and orli will give more uh, of their impressions orli if i can ask you also to comment on um your excellent piece in 972 mag uh the smutrization of the israeli public um that would be that would be great Yeah so just to pick up on what Sally just said it's i think one of the most devastating processes that the israeli public is going through is this so so quote unquote awakening that uh, parts of uh, huge parts of the so called liberal camp has been going through and it's amazing that the same public that as Sally mentioned just you know several months ago were out by the t- hundreds of thousands in the streets shouting democracy democracy and saw smotrich as the public enemy now fully embracing the essence of the smotrich thought and doctrine when it comes to gaza because what Smotrich presented in his uh, decisive plan regarding the West Bank basically puts three options presents three options for the so-called solution to Palestinians one is to stay as and 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 give up 
any uh, hope or, or aspirations for national uh, uh, liberation and basically stay as inferior uh, residents, not, not even in the status of citizens, uh, as inferior as slaves, basically. Uh, two is to leave, yeah, ethnic cleansing of of uh, the West Bank. And three, if they choose not, if they choose to stay, but not to give up their national uh, aspirations, then Israel will basically annihilate them. I mean, total war to total elimination. That's the, those are the three options. That when Smotrich presented it, and even until today, it's it's in in the Israeli discourse. It wasn't even discussed that much because it's con- it was conceived as such a crazy, radical, lunatic plan. But today we are seeing that these are exactly the three options that the Israeli public in general, including huge chunks of the liberal camp, uh, see as uh, quite legitimate as the three options to Palestinians in Gaza. Yeah, the one is stay as in inferior status is basically Israeli saying what why did they why do they uh, uh, struggle why do they uh, fight yeah it and it doesn't matter what kind of fighting yet yeah, whether the Israelis said the same when there were uh, peaceful marches uh, to to the to the border as well uh, I mean as long as you can uh, live in Gaza and we you know uh, provide you with some food and some water and some so what what is that approach just you know you had it so good uh, in inside the siege the besieged Gaza and you know, why why not just stay quietly the second option is also being discussed very clearly which is the ethnic cleansing and it starts from the ethnic cleansing that Israel is doing right now in Gaza which is completely acceptable not only acceptable but a- actually seen as a humanitarian israeli act to evict the entire population of northern gaza down to the to the th- south and it goes all the way to explicit calls for full ethnic cleansing of Gaza into the Sinai Desert or wherever, yeah, including people like the uh, Minister of Intelligence. And the third option, which also Israel also is implementing right now, which is really there's no other way to call it but annihilation war, yeah, with already about 2% of Gaza's population either killed or injured, is also very much acceptable by the vast majority of the Israeli people. So in that in, in that sense, Israelis really internalized the logic of Smotrich that seemed so far-fetched and so lunatic and crazy just until not such long ago. All of a sudden, it's completely acceptable when it comes to Gaza. Yeah, just to build off of those, it's interesting because in a lot of conversations about, among some segments of the Israeli left or leftists who try to see almost like a silver lining in the horrors we've been seeing this past while, there have been a lot of comparisons, for example, with, with the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And people talk that there were these kind of two streams that happened within Israeli society and Israeli politics. Uh, one was a galvanizing of an Israeli right, which had been, you know, building up since 1967, especially, but that kind of 
set a lot of the seeds for the rise of Likud in 77 and that and the settler movement in the West Bank and the more religious kind of extremist elements. But on the other the other stream of that was also groups like Peace Now and uh, and a movement that was also beginning to emerge over the years that was against uh, the occupation and that you know also took years to so the optimists among segments of that left see that maybe even if not immediately but maybe this is what happened October seventh and what's happening in the past month plus might help to create this sort of fork. Right now, even as we're in the eye of the storm, and basically what Sally and Orly have been describing is actually showing that only one stream is winning out, and it is a total embrace of the most extreme ideas and extreme policies, even sort of quote-unquote begrudgingly. But this is something that's really also ripped apart, even those uh, you know, Israeli leftists or pro-democracy protesters, whereby the polarization is so skewed to one side towards democratization, towards a total embrace of the idea that Gaza just needs to be dealt with in the most brutal way. We can't allow it to exist. And we also saw this before, like the second intifada of the early 2000s had a very similar kind of psychological effect on Israeli Jewish society. And we can unpack more about it. And obviously there's a Palestinian side to this equation. But for Israeli society, the second intifada lurched everyone very much to the right, which also took years to develop at home. But that was the real effect of what Israeli society saw as a violent, traumatic moment. And we're seeing that now in full scale. And this is not, it's not just a response alone. It is a fact that the impunity that was given to Israelis and the Israeli state in the second intifada to basically do what they wanted to Palestinians is now being done even, I think, in even more full force, bizarrely, under this Biden democratic government compared to like even the Bush war on terror years. It seems obscene to say it, but like the, the fact that we're talking about full-scale ethnic cleansing, the idea of statehood not even being really on the equation and just telling the state to go ahead, I think is also being internalized exactly as Orly was uh, describing of just understanding that they want to remake their immediate environment and that they have the power to do so. And there's a lot more complexity into this, a lot of splintering, but I think this is one of the most alarming effects we've been seeing in a society which has abandoned the old school Zionist left of ages, which was with all its imperfections. But I think it's a very alarming trend we've been seeing. I do want to just add some things. I do, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you, uh, Amjad, in terms of the fork, because I do think that we are we are like the second fork. <laughs> I see ourselves as that. Obviously, I do think that we are dealing with a much more uh, difficult uh, reality. Uh, I agree. However, I think we are building a new narrative that is much less conditional for Palestinians. Uh, I am personally experiencing a vast wave of Palestinian youth who are like really joining us, like in the thousands. And it's something that the Jewish left before wasn't able to do. And that's, I think that's different. Uh, I do think it has something uh, that can actually be of a different, that can make the difference. I also wanted to add something that we didn't touch here. We need to acknowledge the fact that Bibi Netanyahu has lost his grip on the Israeli public. And, and that's an interesting thing. You know, obviously he's incentivized to continue the war for many reasons, but also because everyone is like, let him stay now. And he's like, he's done after the war. And I do think there's a lot of voices that are coming out right now about the security failure, the security, you know, but also the social and economic, you know, le you know, the failure of the leadership to actually hold this moment. 
And I do think there is an opportunity there to to create the conflict after after you know the post traumatic state of, of the Israeli public to take that and capitalize on it uh, towards the second side of the fork, uh, which is an interesting you know point. Obviously, in in, in such impossible uh, realities and situation, you need to look at every single opportunity, right, and capitalize on it. And and it's an interesting point to uh, to mention. So given the the landscape that you all just laid out for us, I'm interested in also kind of the nitty gritty, like how have you as advocates and, and in your respective organizations, how have you been spending your time like in the aftermath of October 7th? Like Sally just alluded to some of that, but yeah, just break it down for listeners because there have been a number of like Palestinian organizations within Israel that essentially they're, they're just putting out fires. Like they're ta- they're, all of their time now is not even to advocate. It's to support their constituencies and to, and to protect them uh, in this kind of political crackdown that's, that's uh, ensuing. So how have you guys been spending your time? You don't have to specifically tell us about the organizations that you're a part of, but if you want to, you can. And then uh, Sally, I'd love to hear more about your U.S. experience because I know you just came back from the U.S., Whoever wants to start, Orly. Um, yeah, so I'll talk briefly uh, about both my, uh, you know, under my both of my capacities in Betzelem and in a local call. I mean, in Betzelem, this is an incredibly challenging moment. Uh, Betzelem um, is a big organization with a very unique staff. I mean, we have. Uh, staff members in 48, in East Jerusalem, in uh, the West Bank, and of course in Gaza. And we have Jewish staff members and Palestinian staff members. And so it, it's it's very emotional moment uh, for everybody and to, you know, keep the organization together and actually may have a clear voice has been, a ch- it's, it's been a challenge for sure. Much more so because, you know, for over a month and a half now, I check up about three times a day with the manager of the field researchers department just to check and see if our field researchers in Gaza are still alive. Like really three times a day, we just check to see. And all of them uh, lost many, many family members. Our Ulfat uh, Al-Kurad, actually, um, she already le- lost more than 20 family members. And just yesterday, also her brother and his family. So it's um, just to contain that is is beyond I mean, it's 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 impossible to describe how and and through that to keep our work and uh, you know bring testimonies and voice out the voice that nobody wants to hear right now that these are actually war crimes and that it's not permitted to just slaughter civilians like that. That's not and and to bring the voice of uh, international humanitarian law and. Um, which nobody wants to hear right now. So it's incredibly challenging. And of course, with all the violence that tripled uh, in the West Bank under the pretense of the war, we have a lot of work as well. And and we should not forget about the crimes uh, of uh, the army and the settlers in the West Bank as well. So these are very, very challenging times. 
At local call, for me, it has been a sanctuary in a, in a way because it's one of the only places that I actually find some sanity. And we we have a mission. We have a mission to publish what the Israeli media won't show. And, you know, maybe we should discuss that later in more detail about the failure of the Israeli media and the full collaboration of it with the genocidal atmosphere in Israel. But the feedback that we've been receiving, people really from literally around the world thanking us for, you know, bringing that that other voice from uh, within Israel, it makes it worthwhile somehow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the a bit of the safety whereby I actually I moved to London just about two weeks before the war started by cosmic chance. So I mean, being able to do a lot of things in a safer position than when I was in uh, in Haifa where I was living before. I mean, my work has been mostly focused on media um, and just you know dealing with international media, dealing with a lot of requests on that front. And similarly to Orly, you know, through you know my team, I was, I was working with journalists in Gaza where it's like every day we're checking in, and you know there are times where there's there's blackouts or we had some. Reporters were based in Gaza City as the army offensive was there, and so there'll be days where we didn't hear back from them. And so it's and you're some you're editing and write and helping to produce articles for people who you don't know if they'll be able to see it the next day either because of electricity or because or for something much worse. And this is in addition to what's going on in the West Bank, where we also have a lot of networks, communities uh, that are like Orly spoke about this massive settler violence. But even in '48, uh, the total fear and paralysis uh, that has taken over so many. And so differently from like May 2021, uh, whereby there was a lot of fear and horror, but there was still also ferocity that people being able to come out. But something about this and the way that the state and Jewish society as well has really uh, leapt on to this kind of very totalitarian turn, like including against Palestinian citizens, has been, yeah, really paralyzing to everybody. So just trying to keep that media, keep that media conversation, being able to say things that I think a lot of people back home just don't feel safe enough to say, just using my position here to, to do that if there are consequences later we'll, we'll find out uh, the next time i fly into fly into bengri on airport but um but it's one but it's one of those moments where at least i mean uh, coming back coming to the positive side it's like for all the flaws of a lot of international conversations and media it's been quite astonishing to see like here in london the demonstrations like they're actually having pretty incredible effects not just on the palestine discourse but even in local politics the same is happening right now in the united states i think you know little little fractures uh, of course but it's it's been quite astounding to see for all its flaws like that, that there is uh, there's something shaping up but it's that fear that you're seeing this kind of progress and this openness to want to hear from people on the ground and questioning old narratives um about the regime on the ground, but at the same time, it's not outpacing the destruction on the ground. It's not outpacing the death. So it's a very conflicting position to be in. Yeah, like Amjad, what he's saying about the paralyzing, I have never, ever felt this level of submission. It's just the deepest level of, of fear that we are feeling here as Palestinians. And I will say a little bit about how my days look like in general, not in the U.S., and uh, maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the U.S., but I'm a community organizer. Uh, <laughs> that's what I do. Um, at the very beginning, you know, the first two, three weeks, we literally were putting out fires, as Muna, you said it. You know, we were literally just 
uh, doing mutual aid. Um, I led like an operation to locate <laughs> and cl- map out and clean bomb shelters here in Haifa. I, I, you know, we had an 800 people operation to do that. And it was just like the most depoliticized, most like just pure. So like, let's just de-escalate. Let's just de-escalate because really it felt like it's a room full of gas and like the lightest spark would have exploded everything. So we were just trying to vent out like open windows, you know, and vent out the explosives. It was really just, it felt like that. It still feels like that for many uh, Palestinians here. You know, um, we are working with students. We are organizing students who are being attacked, who are being expelled, who are being attacked physically, uh, by the way. So we're working with a lot of, with a network of students, mostly Palestinian, but also Jewish leftists who have been, you know, very expressive about uh, uh, the war, about the attacks, about the occupation. So we have been working with them. We have been uh, organizing and training them to de-escalate and to also understand how we are going to do this, you know, with the academic year approaching. We have a hotline. So we have been supporting people who have been fired, uh, persecuted. Like I am personally getting like personal threats with my address. That's like happening in the thousands. And it's it's very dangerous. And we're trying to understand how we work with other, you know, human rights organizations and, and civil rights organizations to, to combat that, those persecutions. Uh, and most importantly, we have been doing rallies. Protests have been kind of illegal. They actually just approved one that was led by Khadash Jabha last week. But really, you know, they'll counter protest was bigger than that. People also don't want to, you know, be uh, risking going to these things. So we have been actually renting private venues and we've been mobilizing hundreds of people every three days. We've been hopping from one city to another, mixed cities, you know, Palestinian towns, uh, Jewish towns. And we have been rallying like unexpected and uh, amount of people uh, that will uh, that would come to these things. At the beginning, it was very, as I said, soft, de-escalate. And we are becoming more uh, political now. We are be- becoming more sharp. We understand, you know, as community organizers, you want to meet people at their emotional state. And we're trying to meet both Palestinian and Jewish public at their emotional state, which is like mission impossible. But uh, that's what I, I, we're trying to do every day. Uh, that's what we're doing. It's very difficult. Uh, it is creating a lot of tension in our uh, leadership, but we've got some practice Obviously, nothing can prepare us to this moment, but we have got some practice and we're trying to navigate this. The U.S. trip was difficult. It was draining. We felt like we are being, like people really perceive it as there's nothing left of the left. There's nothing left of anti, anti-occupation efforts, any peace, you know, peace at the, at the moment. And when humanity and peace become such a radical concept... <laughs> you know you're in trouble. <laughs> and really, humanity is such a radical concept right now. And going with that to a very, very polarized, like it's another war zone in the US. Uh, and I think in, in, in the UK as well, <laughs> you know, there is a war zone that's so polarized. And in many ways, it's the war of narratives. It's just so not constructive in many ways, because narratives talk about the path you just keep going back you keep going back you keep going and like it's it's just it doesn't work obviously i am so overwhelmed by the popular 
protests everywhere around Palestinian liberation. I think that's amazing. I think that's a historic moment uh, for, for the movement, you know, worldwide. I do think that for so many years it has been suppressed and it hasn't really acquired the right tools to navigate this properly and also acknowledge the Israeli left and that the dying. It's like we're so like we're like we're going to emerge from the ashes at some point. Right. Otherwise, we're like doomed. And the Palestinians are doomed if the Israeli left is doomed, by the way. And I think the Palestinian liberation movement doesn't understand that. You know, we you need to build the popular demand within Israeli society to end the occupation out of like recognizing that Israel has the hegemony, has the power, you know, out of that realization, not out of normalizing the the, the occupation. I, I felt overlooked as a Palestinian coming and trying to do that in the U.S. Uh, I felt that from the Palestinian uh, liberation uh, side, uh, from the more, uh, let's say, Zionist, Jewish progressive side, I felt a lot of support, but also it felt unfair. That sounds childish to say, <laughs> but it felt unfair that I had to contain so much of their complexity and their complex with our homeland as a Palestinian who is impacted directly. You're just like, please, like, live out your biblical fantasies on somebody else. Like, I've, I have things to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it, I don't think it's biblical fantasies, by the way, for the progressive Jewish, like, like for many of them, obviously, I have nothing to say, but like for the progressive Jewish communities, it's not biblical fantasies. It's like, real connection that they have to, to our homeland. And it's very, very difficult to deal with in general. You can't ignore it. It's there. But it's also people who are progressive, who are trying to promote some kind of uh, a solution. And you you either overlook it and just relinquish any responsibility to to impact it, or you actually try to impact it. And honestly, I don't think if, if the Israeli left relinquishes the responsibility to impact that community, which has a huge influence on what happens here, then we, we don't have the privilege to do that, is what I'm saying. And it's it's draining. It's very difficult uh, being there. And honestly, just as a Palestinian who has to do that, I, I felt like I lost something of myself. I, I really felt like I gave up something. I gave up part of my experience and my pain and my trauma to do to be able to do that. It was very difficult, uh, but I'm grateful I had the privilege to do it in the sense that someone has to do it. <laughs> and I just found myself at the position to do it. And I do think they are making a process as well, which needs to be done. No, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I just want to make it clear. I, I was talking about the American public. I think the American public, there are certain elements of the American public, you know, the Christian evangelicals that are insane. But I, I completely understand I completely understand what you're talking about in terms of the progressive and particularly Jewish left. Like it makes sense. And I, and I totally feel your pain that like you have to absorb other people's um, connection and like intensity about this when you're already suffering. Yeah. And, and I came back home and I have zero space. You know? <laughs> right. And so like, you're, you're having to like mollify them. I don't know what the term is, but, but I, I, I will say that like, you're right. That like, we can't, I feel like we cannot cede that ground. And we like, maybe not emotionally, but intellectually, we can understand, especially with rising anti-Semitism, why they feel that there is, you know, there is this connection. And like, that's not something that can be sometimes harmful, because they are projecting a lot. But 
but also it can be used and it can be uh, turned on its head and it can and it can be built used to build you know bridges between everyone's suffering sorry if i can just add quickly dana uh no because it's along those lines like i i think what's kind of both depressing and maybe enlightening at the same time is that like the historical precedent is already there we already know what happened we talked about this in the most recent episode, which was with like uh, it, the title some was something along the lines of like uh, Arab Jews for Palestinian liberation, something like that. Two two Jews from the diaspora. One one actually grew up in in Tel Aviv. I forgot where uh, Hadar is based. I think in California. But in any case, like the idea was that we talked about historically there was a moment, roughly I, I don't I don't quite know when the sh- the, the rift happened, 50s, 60s, something along so, somewhere along those lines. Where both the Israeli state was saying you cannot be Jewish and Arab, uh, you know, you have to pick basically. And obviously it was saying pick being Jewish and let go of the Arab, uh, your Arab identity or heritage or whatever. But then the authoritarian Arab regimes were basically saying, yeah, actually you also, you only have those two options as well. They were basically saying you can choose this or that. And so there was a bit a weird symbiosis between the Israeli uh, government at the time, the Israeli state, you might say, and, and the Arab states. And what kind of, one of the reasons I, I personally, and this is like me, I have this specific vantage point and said, I grew up in Lebanon of Palestinian heritage, but grew up as a Lebanese. And I was seen as that, that in Lebanon as well, there's very much this similar problem. Like even using the term Israel, you can get shouted at. Uh, you have to put it either in quotation, say so-called or, uh, say like designist entity, you know, which sounds very weird in English or, you know, stuff like that. And to the point that you have actual comical situations where like you cannot say Israel bombed Gaza. You have to say, I don't know, the occupation army bombed Gaza, but of what occupation of what from where and how? And it creates, it creates this kind of discursive impossibility in which we're basically just preventing ourselves from actually doing anything about anything like f- fundamentally the ground in lebanon has already been seated now there are exceptions uh you have like smaller groups of feminist intersectional trying to do things differently and whatnot but for the most part the ground of anything palestine related has already been seated to what we call the mumena to like hezbollah and and, and those groups and their vision of things is by far like ha- has nothing to do with progressive anything. Like it's not even it's not even liberal. It's not even close to anything that we might consider like liberatory. And I've said this multiple times. But if you are an average Israeli Jewish person in some some somewhere in Israel, and maybe you're not political, maybe you don't you follow the news here and there, and the only thing you know from coming from up north is basically Hezbollah. Why wouldn't you conclude that it's either us or them? And this is not about Palestine, by the way. I'm talking about Lebanon. But in Lebanon, there is this kind of this confusion, I think, or at least ignorance, whatever terms we want to use, of not wanting to deal with Israel-Palestine as Israel-Palestine, i.e. recognize that Palestinians, for example, Palestinians of 48, as we say, Palestinians of citizens of Israel, uh, have also a different reality and have had a different reality for seven decades now, that there there are like different things that they have to deal with that maybe me as a Palestinian naturalized Lebanese, you know, I, I would never have to deal with, or as Palestinians in the diaspora, maybe Palestinian Americans or whatever may not have to deal with these specific realities on a day-to-day basis. And I guess like here, I'll, I'll, I'll get more transition to more of a open question at the same time. How do you deal with the difficulties or if you, I mean, I don't know, but the difficulties of, of having to talk about oppression from, you know, Zionism, settler colonialism, apartheid, you know, all of, all of those terms and categories 
while at the same time having to deal with a lot of people in our world, for lack of a better term, that <clears throat> want to talk about, you know, Israel, as long as you mention apartheid and Zionism and settler colonialism and all of that. But at the same time, there's almost like a disconnect that, well, this also means that this is a real place and a real entity and a real government and a real state and a real nationality. And that that means we need to contend with that reality and challenge it, you know, having a local allies where they exist and stop pretending that they don't exist. Because I, I still don't know to this day, and sorry, you mentioned this a bit, like, I still don't know to this day, who, who do we think benefits if we pretend that there are no local allies and we pretend we almost like are wishing them away because I have this feeling this, I, I can't prove it, but this is like through conversations and a bit being from that space before in Lebanon which I have seen reproduced, like, especially in the UK to some extent, I think in the US, on the US left to some extent as well, almost like just wishing it away and hoping that maybe this means that any semblance of progressive, anything liberal, anything related to Israel disappears. And that way, you know, it exposes itself to the world. And somehow this might mean that the world comes and stops Israel or, or whatever. And I don't know where that comes from, because there's no historical precedent to suggest that this is ever going to happen. And there's no historical precedent in any other struggles that I know of, whether it's South African apartheid, which is the one that's mostly talked about, where you didn't have local allies. And the, the African National Congress has made it very, very clear from the beginning that the enemy is apartheid, not like random white Afrikaners. And indeed, they wanted and they did have white Afrikaners in, in, their, in their ranks. So it just and this might be I, again, this is like a, a particular podcast. I know I'm hoping listeners are like generous with their understanding and not jumping to conclusions and whatnot. But this is a frustration I've had way before, like October 7th. And since then, I just saw it like, okay, it's not a priority, sure. Like there is a more urgent, of course, happening, urgent thing happening right now on the ground. But in terms of like moving forward and trying to think of like, you know, what the next steps might be or whatnot, how do you, you know, so I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how do you, or if you deal with that, how do you deal with that kind of complexity in spaces that don't seem to want to recognize that kind of complexity, if that makes sense? Yeah, if I can kind of, develop, I mean, this really taps into as well. Uh, I mean, what Sally was speaking about, what Orly, I think what we all kind of represent here is this desire and tendency for binaries, binaries in the way that we're looking at everything, binaries and how you identify yourself. And I mean, I mean, like, like Sally and I are both Palestinian citizens of Israel, which, you know, is a community that defies a lot of the binaries that's applied. And I'm, you know, and to hear Sally speak about like her US trip or even, I'm sure like even her day to day work whereby, there are actually people, and of course, and Orly also represents this as well in her identity and her positionality. I'm just like that there are these massive gray zones in between, and there are spectrums in that gray zones. And exactly like you said, Joey, I think the way that so many struggles and even the understanding of decolonization or even just the shifting of power, as, uh, power asymmetries as if it was entirely a binary process and it was all about one side here, one side there. Or it was a kind of rallying of the ethno tribalisms and like these weird concepts have taken hold in a such a strange manner. And I think this is also what you know, Sally was saying this earlier, you know, like to grapple with why you need Israeli Jews to even cede willingly or not to the idea that they need to let go of the occupation or to offer something alternative is like exactly. It's not because it's a lovey dovey coexistency type thing. Sometimes it's a language of power. It is about how do you actually crack power needs to be cracked and where you build it where it needs to be built and this is not to say that one shouldn't always push for more radical politics and maybe sometimes binaries and principles is what's needed you know do you believe in equality for all do you believe in the ethno-racial supremacy and the other like these these for sure there needs to be a clear cut you either here or there 
But in our methodology, in the way that we think about movement building, and this is something that I think Dan and I have also talked about uh, in previous forums, whereby I think we need to re-instill a bit more nuance into our into the way that we're conceiving our movements. And in the public discourse, whereby we're tempted and almost encouraged to make it as simple as possible. But I think we need to, I mean, the, the, way, we, the way we break that, I think, is also just being a bit honest about facts on the ground. Like even in my own reporting or my writing, one of the scariest things I'm always having to do is to tell people that not everyone, like let's say even just among Palestinian citizens, not everyone is on the same page. You have Palestinian citizens who serve in the army. You have Palestinian citizens who are uh, c- content with their quote-unquote arab Israeliness. You have Palestinians who, you know, I mean, a huge chunk of the community is shocked by what happened on October 7th, but they still understand the context, even though they don't justify it. And so many other levels and kaleidoscopic um, levels where you can just understand that there is no black and white. And so just being honest about that, being putting that on the table, I think helps to break the black and white paradigms that are kind of being enforced on us. And just to hear like Sally speak about that in the U.S. sometimes, whereby it's like, no, there's there's greater complexity. And rather than having that being used against us, which is often the case, like how can we take that and own that? And then to say that even with that complexity, these are still the bottom lines. These are still the values you need to promote. Um, this is something I'm trying to do in my own kind of media work and in my writings. Because I want to make complexity my my weapon. I want to make it, I want to bring it to my advantage. And I really think Palestinians in Israel have a key role in like deciphering that. <laughs> Uh, we really have a key role. And, and when I at the very beginning, when I spoke about the political persecution of Palestinians and how it's like really dangerous, it's it's exactly because of this. Our space to be Palestinian, to be political, uh, to be equal partners in building the new left in Israel is 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 crucial. It's crucial. And and I think they understand that. And that's why they're cracking down on us. But it's it's absolutely crucial. And, and we're trying to maintain it as much as possible uh, on the ground. You know, jumping on that, I, I, I completely appreciate and, and agree with the sentiment that reality is way more complex, the black and white binary, and that the recognition of uh, the existence of allies on the quote-unquote other side is so important to, to if you want to really change reality not just to complain about it but having said that i think that it's also very legitimate uh, that the palestinians would demand their jewish partners to grow up and mainly become more political i think one of the things that we are seeing and it goes also to the shatter that really the amazing and so troubling shattering of the quote-unquote left camp in Israel is because of the long-lasting depoliticizing of the Palestinian case by such large portions of that camp. And because of the construction of the Palestinian case for such a long time as a humanitarian one, rather than a political one, because as a humanitarian case, we, the Jewish left, are, you know, the good guys. We are the good guys that stand with, with the victims. And, and as long as they keep being the victims, we have it all figured out. Figured out. But then 
when the Palestinians for one minute step out of the role of being the victims, our entire understanding of reality just collapses because it's not based on political analyzing of the situation. And I think it's completely fair from our Palestinian partners to demand from us to grow up and to become more politicized and not, you know, have our whole world collapse or our understanding of the reality collapse when the equation changes uh, for a minute, because political understanding deals with distribution of power, with relations of power, with, you know, and, and those haven't changed on October 7th. Yet they haven't changed. So I, I absolutely agree that it's important to recognize the existence of potential partners on both sides. But it's at the same time, it's completely legitimate to expect your partners to have a deeper political understanding and base their their position on that understanding and not just on on a feel-good humanitarian uh, uh, prospect. Absolutely. But theoretically, it's true. But how? I mean, actually, that brings us to our last question. Let's talk about the how. What is your theory of change? What is everybody's theory of change here? And I'll tell you what's not for me. Moral lecturing. It doesn't work. Moral lecturing historically does not work. It just doesn't work. And, and for you to come and lecture Israeli, I can't go to an Ethiopian woman right now and tell her to liberate me. You know, an Ethiopian Jewish woman here who is, you know, <laughs> her son is experiencing the same incarceration rate as me, probably got, statistically is as poor as, as a Palestinian in Israel. I can't come and tell her to liberate me. I can't. I just sit like it, it won't work. What you need to do in Israeli society is, and I, I keep saying that, and I say this angrily because it's one of the most difficult <laughs> realizations for me. And, you know, if we're not going to do this together, you know, the natives in, uh, where was it? I, I think in, in New Zealand, they said, like, if you're coming to save me, I don't want you to save me. We're going to do this together. It's like the collective liberation. And obviously there is a differential in power, of course, and that's why, you know, in many ways, the narratives and the historic justice and, and really the historic recording of, of the injustices and, and the power dy- dynamic and the power dynamic is, is there. It's always going to be there. It cannot be dealt with unless we actually get to a point of understanding that Jewish safety, you know, equates Palestinian liberation. And the Jewish-Israeli public needs to understand that from a very self-interest point of view. And that's our theory of change. As a movement, we are building, we're, we're, we're socialist, by the way, we're progressive social movement and, and deep changes of shifting the paradigm, understanding, you know, that, again, Jewish safety necessitates Palestinian liberation. And they need to understand that. Uh, and it's it's absolutely a conscious political stream that needs to be built in Israeli society that is also deeply connected with equality and social justice within Israeli society. And, and we do that also through building that new political protagonist and, and idea, and also through organizing methodologically around it to build power. You know, the fact that our movement was able to react the way it has, and we actually have mobilized thousands of people. No one else mobilized as much as, as, as our movement is because we're organizing and because we had that political immunity 
of navigating these complexities at this moment. That's our theory of change in, in very, very shortly. Uh, obviously, it's very complex. I can add a lot about it. I can add how we can actually maintain the political justice. And I think in many ways, as a Palestinian uh, uh, in Israel, uh, Palestinians also have to here have to hold the responsibility of the collective Palestinian. I feel deeply responsible to hold the narrative of, of, of you, Joey, and of, of Dana, and of like the people in the West Bank and in Gaza. That's a very collective responsibility that needs to be held while we are talking about building the left within Israel. That's how I see it. It's not easy. It's not easy. You know, I don't see any other way. Uh, first of all, I mean, Sally, it's uh, so admirable uh, what you guys are doing. And uh, I I understand what you're saying, that it's not effective to lecture morally to people, but I actually do that. I think people need to also be morally lectured. It's an important function that needs to remain. I'm not saying otherwise. Absolutely. No, no. I, I, but, and it's not completely inefficient because people do respond to that as well. I think that my, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I have a theory of change, but the way I, I try in my very small way to make a change is first through providing language and, and terminology and information. I mean, as journalists, this is our task to bring the information that the Israeli public doesn't get anywhere else in order to being able to make uh, educated decisions and to uh, better understand our own reality. As a political activist, I think that I completely agree with uh, Sally uh, uh, and Amjad about that, 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 you know, the, the key is inside 48. And I'll say even more than that, I think the key is Palestinian political leadership inside 48, and this is why I am in Balad, in Tajammo. I think that this is really our only way for our sake, for the Jewish-Israeli uh, public sake. The way to democratization and liberation from the chains of supremacy are in the hands of the Palestinian citizens. And uh, the, the, the first item on my theory of change is not to do, not to repeat any of the things that we've been doing so far. And to do it differently is to stand behind the Palestinian-led political leadership, behind the vision of full equal, full equality, full democracy, essential democracy that we, we've never had before. So, uh, I mean, these are my very, very, very minor ways to try to bring about change. Yeah, I mean, this kind of echoes some of the things we've said, but for me, the core thing is about recalibration of power. Um, what Sally and Orly said is totally right. And for me, every and everything I'm doing in the broad sense of the term, how do you, you have to force or like, let's, how do you bring down Israeli power and how do you elevate Palestinian power? And, you know, there are multiple fronts to this. And this doesn't mean about, like, military might or anything like that. Like, it, it, we're talking about exactly public discourse in narrative, in organization, in the way that Sally's doing, in the way being able to crack also some of the narratives in the way that Orly does. Like, I think this is so fundamental because, yeah, it's um, no society in power, let alone at the helm of a very powerful, you know, apartheid or colonial state, 
gives up, gives up that power willingly. Even inside Israel, the number of Jewish Israelis, I'm sure Sally and Orlean, you know, they know these people very, very well as well. You know, you can put, they can see a lot of kinds of rights for Palestinians, whether inside 48 or occupied territories, but there's always those little zones that need to be exactly, but these we keep, these are our hands up, whether it's demographics, whether it's identity, you know, the whole list. And this is being generous to those people in those camps. And I think Sally's experience in the United States was very indicative of that, whereby the conditionality of what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed to do, how you're allowed to act has always been on this asymmetry. And so for me, I mean, at least in the realm that I'm working is about how do I make people understand what many people call like the apartheid of the mind, not just apartheid on the ground. The apartheid in the mind is like how many of you, you know, the broad you are putting Jewish Israeli rights or security first before you think of the Palestinians. How much of the past century conflict has been on that asymmetrical plane. And if I can get you to recognize that and to question that, that already is trying to create that recalibration of power, to make Israelis feel less certain that they can get away with anything and everything. And to, and for Palestinians in turn, to reorganize ourselves. I mean, we know all the reasons in the context why we've been so fractured and in the history of oppression, but also, you know, it, what is our role in being able to really organize on the ground, to reorganize politically and to create a wider movement that actually genuinely allows diversity of opinion among our people and among our movement and not trying to create these silos and camps. I know Daniel also like sees this a lot and experiences this a lot of like who also gets silenced within our own community. But how do we reinstill the values in a self-organizing way that allows that broad spectrum. And coming back to what Joey said, but this is really what movements had to do. This is where we had to be kind of smarter and more nuanced. So for me, just anything to be able to do that, to to question the centers of power where they're where they're harmful, and to just re, and to elevate ourselves to create that Palestinian-led movement that Orly was speaking about. Um, you know, these I mean, these are very broad, big concepts, but I think that uh, that needs to be the guiding principles uh, and the guiding mechanisms for it. Thank you all for um, that, you know, that kind of vision and laying that out. I uh, I know we're speaking kind of at a high level of abstraction, but I, I it really resonates with some of the things that I've been thinking about. I just I just think that because every, every one of us does something different and every one of us works in different spaces and not, not just us, everybody that, you know, cares about Israel-Palestine, it, it just makes sense for me that people do different things achieve different functions we need the person who can frame things and reframe things and lecture about the morality of the situation we definitely need that and we also need the you know the the organizing component and and meeting people at their level and 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 demonstrating that like to the jewish israeli or even to the american jew any jew that has an interest in israel as a form of safety for the Jewish people that like this doesn't come without that like your democracy was ruined <laughs> because of the Palestinian question your democracy never got off the ground because you couldn't deal with this and your economy is going to be in shambles and you're going to keep facing war if you're not going to deal with it so it's it's explaining this and the idea of a Jewish safety is not going to come to fruition if you keep making people unsafe and explaining that but explaining it reframing it thinking about using our positionalities as as a tool like in our different spaces and i think that also means back to the power differentials that also means that some people are responsible for taking a longer view and meeting people where they are 
because they have more privilege. And some people, we shouldn't expect that of them. And so as the Palestinian in the diaspora, I'm just like, yeah, I, I will take on some of some of this and I can be more nuanced and I can put my intellectual cap on and and, uh, and address uh, Jewish safety concerns. A Palestinian in Gaza shouldn't be expected to, to use that kind of same discussion and framing. And so instead of seeing this as some sort of as some sort of like a deficit in the discussion that, oh, like, we're, you know, we're not all on the same page or the people who are not on the same page with me need to be silenced. Well, I don't, I mean, I think I've, I've been like shouting and become hoarse about this for many years now. Like, why don't we use these different positionalities, keeping in mind our different responsibilities? So, I mean, that's just my, sorry, I'm not an organizer. So I feel like I, you know, I have much less to it. did it very well. I, I really agree with everything that you said. And here, you know, it, it's also an ecosystem. You know, we won't be able to operate. I can't operate as a social movement without having a foundation of human rights, you know, reporting and also an academic reporting, historic justice reporting. It's a foundation that gives me the privilege not to deal with it, you know, and actually meet people and organize people on the ground. It's 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 a it's a necessary foundation for me, and it's it's an ecosystem at the end of the day with different functions. We do need to be we do need to sink on certain things that I don't think we're synced in yet. Not all of us, which is this you know intertwined collective, you know you know Jewish safety equals you know Palestinian liberation and vice versa, and I think that needs to be linked better. But I absolutely agree. I think we all hold different functions, different privileges, different positions. And that's that's important. Not only like acceptable, it's it's important. Okay, so I am tasked with trying to find a way to wrap this up, even though I, I don't like doing it. So thanks, Dana, for putting me on the spot, by the way. <laughs> so I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I am joking, I'm joking. Thank you. Thank you, all of the three of you, for doing this. Dana as well, obviously. Uh, this is just one of those conversations where like it, there's no actual end. And like, at least I, I, I would not be able to find a natural end to this conversation because there are so many ways it can branch out into then, you know, sub conversations and maybe disagreements over tactics or discussions of different tactics that we can use and the different framings that are need to be adapted. Like the term diversity of tactics does apply here that talking of this conversation I know I'm going to send it to a number of Lebanese friends, for example, because they are not used to this topic. They're not used to it. They don't know how to to approach it, even though Israel is literally the southern neighbor of Lebanon. But the the idea, the very idea of talking about it in the sense of like from a pragmatic, also ethical, also, you know, progressive and so on framework is something that can and must be done. We don't we don't really have another option. And we need to stop killing ourselves that we do have another option. Um, I don't know who's the we in this. Uh, I guess people listening to this can <laughs> obviously disagree and tell me to go to hell. And that's completely fine. Although say so nicely, please. But besides that, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good end note other than saying I really appreciate the three of you for doing what you do. Uh, I'm sure we'll do more things at some point in the future, hopefully. And uh, yeah, take care of yourselves and obviously, especially if your mental health, these are not. And here comes the euphemistic sentence of the century. These are not easy times. Thank you all for, for being with us today.